0: So that framing, you know, while it tries to equalize things, it ends up kind of reinforcing this narrative that gives fascism power. Yeah. So when people say like, we have to call white nationalist terrorists because we're calling ISIS terrorists, the, the impulse is an anti-racist impulse when it's ordinary right. people saying that, right? right? They say like, oh, we're just, you know, we're always making out people of color and Muslims as terrorists immediately when, when something happens. But if it's white people, then we don't label them. Right. And that's a very healthy concern. Yeah. But I think we need to just be shifting away from that terminology. Altogether.
1: Hey there, Rangers! <laughs> oh man, does anybody have a good name for what we should start calling our listeners, or what you would like to be called as a as a friend of the pod? If you have any ideas, I don't have any. They're not, none of them are good. Anyways, friends of the pod. That was Joan Braun. Joan is a professor of philosophy at Gonzaga University in the field of critical hate studies. I've been friends with Joan for a couple of years now, and she's been. One of the people on the short list to come on Range for the entire time Range has existed. And really, I was talking to Joan about the idea behind Range before I ever started Range, like in those halcyon days of, say, 2019. That clip I began with is a perfect encapsulation of why I wanted to talk to her and why I love, uh, as nerdy as it sounds, (laughs) philosophy in general, is that the work that she does does not merely looking at how to counter violent extremism, right-wing extremism, racism, stuff like that, but also looking at how, how we seek to counter those things and trying to figure out if that's the best way to do it or if there might be a better way to do it. Let me quote myself here from the interview for a second. The extra step that philosophers like you take is saying, okay, we understand the landscape, but is the way we're currently responding the only way to respond? Is our response maybe having a negative impact elsewhere? In trying to oppose something awful, are we subconsciously or unconsciously propping up other bad power structures elsewhere that are causing harm in different ways? And given all that, is there a better way to talk about this? And as a guy with a philosophy undergrad, these questions are running through my mind all the time. It's also why I'm not very much fun at parties sometimes. So that's the backdrop for why I wanted to talk to Joan. Not just that she had been doing this work in uh, studying the far right, but also that she had been thinking about whether or not the way we are going about this is the right way to go about it. Right? We're at a we're at a moment of an inflection point before the before the failed coup. We were already at an inflection point where we had sort of survived four years of, if not fascism, at least uh, Trumpism with fascist tendencies, and now we're. As we heard from Kate Bitts, now that Biden has won, we should expect these far-right elements to begin behaving in a different way, right? Maybe a more violent way, maybe a more like the way that they did during the Clinton presidency as opposed to like the George W. Bush presidency. Bombings, stuff like that. There was a massive spike in far-right and religious violence in the final four years of Obama's presidency, which sort of paved the way for the Trump presidency. So while we've got a little bit of a break, a little bit of a deep breath, we've got, well, what I thought was going to be a deep breath and a break between now and the inauguration day, it seemed like a good idea, good time to say, hey, the way we've been opposing far-right groups, is it the right way or maybe is there a better way or if the opposition should be strong are there ways that we could sort of it's not exactly decolonizing language but it is in a sense breaking the way we talk about these things the the linguistic framework we use to discuss far right political violence sort of breaking it out of a cold war mold that we've been indoctrinated my entire life our most of our entire lives to sort of treat both ends of the political spectrum the far right in the form of actual Nazis, and the, the quote-unquote far left in the form of, say, Antifa, there's nothing more common than those two groups getting lumped together in popular opinion. And a lot of that has to do with the way we use speech. Think about a word like terrorism, right? In the name of terrorism, or our fight against terrorism post-2001, what have we done? What did we do? We invaded Afghanistan, who happened via the Taliban to be one of the people that actually did sponsor the attacks. But we also invaded Iraq under the dual presumption that they had been one of the sponsors of this terrorist act against our country and that they were hiding weapons of mass destruction, which could be used in a terroristic fashion against Europe or America, right? None of those things proved to be true. But we sure as heck used the pretense of protecting our nation from terrorism to bomb the holy hell out of a nation a different sovereign nation of 40 million people. And we continue to have occupying forces there to this day, mostly to help the civilian government that now exists deal with all of the chaos that we created by invading. Not saying Saddam was a good guy, just saying, did we make things better? Did the doctrine and practice of anti-terror make things better? And then let's think about what anti-terrorism has done for us at home. It has, you know, given us the Patriot Act. It has also given us heavily, heavily militarized police forces that haven't been so much used to stop, like, Al-Qaeda from terrorizing the streets of, say, Utica, New York. Newport News. Walla Walla, Washington. As they have to, like, suppress unruly civilian populations when they decide to protest things like the murder of black people on the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, or Minneapolis, Minnesota. If the war on terror, quote unquote, has gotten us into what has turned out to be a forever war, the longest war in American history, continuously ongoing, fighting basically a spectral threat. that now, like in hindsight, since the Obama administration, you know, 2008, our boy Barack more or less won on the promise of bringing our troops home and ending this senseless and failed Series of wars, ending the war in Iraq, ending the war in Afghanistan, closing Guantanamo, which also has not happened. The people being held at Guantanamo under the auspices of protecting us from terrorism basically have zero rights. They've never gone to trial for the things they're accused of. They're just being held in perpetual prison in a way that nobody would ever allow an American citizen to be held. Uh, Well, but speaking of American citizens, like one of the big things in the name of anti terrorism, we just drone bombed the shit out of American citizens who happened to be fighting in foreign wars during the Obama presidency. Raise your hand if you remember Abdul Rahman Al-Alaki, a 16-year-old boy from Denver who was killed in a drone missile attack in Yemen in 2011. So, we've generally agreed as a society that the war on terror is a failure at best and at worst like a stain on the soul of this country that purports to be about due process and human rights. And so if that's true, why do we continue to want to apply a term like terrorism, which is all but synonymous with the suspension of those human rights that we all hold so dear? Why do we want to apply that term as evenly to white racist assholes as we do to people of color and religious minorities? Shouldn't we be applying it less to everybody? Shouldn't we be saying, wow, that was like a collective fever dream that was, in hindsight, a very, very bad rabbit hole to fall down? Let's back ourselves out of that. Let's cool it on this rhetoric altogether. I'm going to be totally honest that before Joan brought this up on social media, I had never really thought in these terms before. And now that she has brought it up and we've had the subsequent discussion, it's all I can think about. Especially because we had this conversation last Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, well, we all know what happened last Wednesday with the storming of the U.S. Capitol building by the QAnon shaman and a few thousand other Donald Trump allied forces. A bunch of Reddit cranks and conspiracy theorists stormed the United States Capitol for the first time since, I think, 1814 when the British sacked Washington for God's sake, in what has been variously called a coup, an insurrection, and a riot. Now, in the words of my incredibly smart friend, Joan, that does not mean...
0: I want to be clear, too. It's not like I don't want harsh sentences on Nazis. I mean, I see their humanity, but I I don't care what happens to them to a certain extent, right? Um, So this is not an argument like, you know... Be nice to Nazis. It's not a be nice to Nazis argument, right?
1: It's an argument that if we continue fighting far-right violence under the terms of counterterrorism and with the same extrajudicial mindset at home that we have always had abroad when it comes to anti-terror, it's actually not going to hurt Nazis as much as it's going to hurt the people that it's always historically hurt, Muslim Americans, religious minorities, other people of color. But we will get into all of that. I just wanted to set a preface that this, I don't don't know, to be honest, if this is going to be one of our more controversial episodes. It feels like it could be. And I think that's actually really, really good because I would love for us as a broad left, right? I think the people that listen to this podcast are generally left of center. We got some libs, we got some leftists, we've got, you know, hopefully we're curating a, a healthy mix of people that listen to this. And I and I just wanted to this will probably be an hour and fifteen minutes of hopefully reflection on the words we use, what those words mean, and also then how words have the power to literally create the world around us. And so if we're using a language of extrajudicial retribution, what can we expect to get except layers and layers and generations upon generations of extrajudicial retribution for things that might be better fought in other ways that would be able to more carefully target the actual problem, meaning fucking Nazis, sorry, mom. And would have less splashback damage on, say, innocent Muslim American communities that just, you know, worship differently than other people and therefore create suspicion. I try to keep these things under 10 minutes. So all of that, Joan Braun, one of the smartest people I know, so lucky to have her in Spokane doing that work here. Coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 23. It's
0: not a be nice to Nazis argument.
1: <laughs> Joan Braun, thank you so much for coming on Range. Um, maybe we could just start by, you just tell us a little bit about what the work you do.
0: Yeah. My primary academic area is technically philosophy, but I, I'm in a field that I call hate studies or critical hate studies, which is interdisciplinary study of fascism and hate groups and white supremacist movements and what we can do to push back and resist their influence.
1: Yeah. You made a funny post a few months ago about how adding critical to the front of anything makes it like you create an entire new academic discipline where you just get to like sort of look critically at a thing that kind of sucks, but could be get better.
0: Um, I, I'm in critical theory, which is kind of the branch of philosophy that tries to do that. And so we'll probably get into that today. But that's kind of what I'm doing with thinking about these concepts too: of terrorism and extremism.
1: So philosophy is a very, very broad field, you know. I'm pulling on my undergraduate education here, you know, like Plato to Heidegger to, um, somebody more contemporary than that. Wittgenstein. I don't know. Sure. (laughs) This is what a nice person Joan is. She was just so patient as my baby brain tried to remember three freaking philosophers. Sure. Yeah. What made you sort of, what, what drew you to the field of hate studies and critical hate studies?
0: Well, I've been doing this for about four years. Um, since the election of Trump, yeah, um, yeah. and my dissertation, you know, several years before that, dealt with fascism to some degree, but really, I wanted to understand what was happening in this present moment and um, part of what I had done before is I had looked at the attraction of like catastrophic and apocalyptic thinking Oh yeah. and so I started off actually looking at Steve Bannon and how he reflected certain philosophical trends that I was worried about um, fantasy of the end of the world and creating chaos in order to remake history but in the process of speaking about that and doing that work I got invited to give talks in the community um, and I started doing more research on current movements different fascist organizations and the direction and they were heading in. So it's really been about response to, to current events.
1: And you, you teach at Gonzaga, but you're, you're not from Spokane, right? You're originally from Texas. Is that right? No.
0: Sort of. Yeah. I grew up kind of all over. Um, I grew up actually in like Washington, New Jersey, South Dakota, Florida, and Texas. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, most recently before here, I was in Milwaukee for okay. three years.
1: So was it finding yourself in a place like the Inland Northwest that also with our history, was that also part of the, the thing that brought you to this field?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I grew up in an activist family and I'm trained that when we move to new places, what we do is we find out what people are protesting and that's how you meet people and that's how you get engaged <laughs> in the community. Um, and so, you know, I got here and like pretty much immediately people were worried about the Proud Boys. they were worried about yeah. Joey Gibson and then just a string of other incidents um, since then. So yeah, a lot of it was like community response.
1: Yeah. As a brief aside, Joan's parents are wonderful people and her father actually has a, a wonderful way of sort of like guilt tripping you into doing <laughs> cool thing, like doing things that you know you need to do. But like for one reason or another, like, oh, I don't have time, whatever. He, he publishes a, a newsletter that I actually um, called the Dorothy Day Labor Forum that I'll actually probably shout out in a future episode and maybe have them on. But he sent out a holiday missive and I was like, oh, Nick, thanks so much, man. This is so nice of you. And then he was like, you know, Luke, you haven't contributed to the <laughs> newsletter recently. So, and so I texted Joan, I was like, your dad's guilt tripping me. To write for the newsletter. <laughs> yeah, he does that. Yeah,
0: it's a very effective tactic. Yeah. I was joking to you that he would disown me if I did not write for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is not true. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the guilt trip is there. <laughs>
1: We've been friends, I think, since close to when you moved here, kind of running in the same circles before I started Range. And I've wanted to have you on Range from the very beginning, not just what you're thinking about, but how you think about it. And that's kind of the whole point of this. And. I've been feeling a little guilty that we talked to Leah Sotillia through a journalistic lens of on the far right. And then Kate Bitts came on and kind of gave us a history of of white supremacy in our region as a grounding for talking about the election. And I was like, oh, I got to have Joan on. But <laughs> I kind of feel like in waiting, in my defense, I think I we kind of came around to the perfect point in the in the sort of scholarly history of range discussing these topics. Because now we get to talk to you who's doing this research on the far right, but also with a philosopher's mind. and so if I could like, uh, hold forth for a second for the listener, like the standard journalistic practice is to describe the world. Like here's the far right. Here's what they're doing. Here's how groups are reacting to it. Conservatives are being pretty quiet. Liberals are calling it terrorism. Antifa is actively opposing it in the streets, et cetera, that sort of stuff, descriptive work. And it's super important to help people understand the lay of the land like that. But the extra step that philosophers like you take is saying, okay, we understand the landscape, but is the way we're currently responding the only way to respond? Is our response maybe having a negative impact elsewhere? In trying to oppose something awful, are we subconsciously or unconsciously propping up other bad power structures elsewhere that are causing harm in different ways? And given all that, is there a better way to talk about this? And as a guy with a philosophy undergrad, these questions are running through my mind all the time. It's also why I'm not very much fun at parties sometimes, but like, it was like kind of the perfect moment For you to post on Facebook like a little holiday miracle, you said in part, I don't know yet what the ideology or intent of the Nashville bomber was. I don't like to assume, although given trends lately, it's likely he was on the far right. If he was, I'll call him a violent far right insurgent, quote unquote, as opposed to a quote unquote terrorist. I am in the process of moving my vocabulary about the far right away from terms associated with the counterterrorism industry and the military-industrial complex, such as terrorist, quote, and extremist, quote, unquote. So maybe we just start with that. We're, we're 20 years after 9-11. Words like terrorist are so pervasive in our culture, they're like second nature. And very, very frequently when there's an act of far right violence, whether it's a church or synagogue bombing or the murder of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville, Or a mass shooting, the the immediate push from I'll say liberals less than the left, but a certain swath of the progressive movement is like, hey, if we're gonna call Al-Qaeda terrorists, we need to call neo-Nazis and Proud Boys or whatever terrorists as well. So, like, what's the problem with that thinking in your mind?
0: So, you know, I I liked your lead up to that as well, because I was thinking about, you know, how I would describe this in philosophical terms. And I think what I could say is, you know, I'm loosely a Hegelian Marxist. Okay. And, um, <laughs> you know, what people would say is it's it's dialectics. And so, like, I, when I think about how different responses are occurring to fascism and to the far right, I generally look at conflicting approaches and I see what they're lacking. Like, I, I usually write this way where I write about, like, you know, here are all the views on this subject and here's what's wrong with all of them, which can seem <laughs> kind of mean, but, but it's how I'm trained to think. Because it's like, how do we move past the internal contradictions. Yes. So one of those models would be what you might call the countering violent extremism model, which is generally a psychologizing and depoliticizing approach. Okay. So it looks at fascism in the far right primarily as a crime problem that can be remedied by state power and by the power of large mainstream institutions. So they'd okay. be interested in how, for example, you could adjust Google results or YouTube algorithms to prevent people from getting recruited and going down rabbit holes, but also very much in policing, surveillance, intervention, counseling, much more that approach rather than a social movement approach. And so what that approach misses in framing fascism and the far right as terrorism, as extremism, as radicalism, is that fascism and the far right or white supremacy are social movements seeking power and they're always already connected to sources of power. So they gain influence from mainstream institutions and from the history of this country as a white supremacist country. And so when we kind of approach this as, you know, we're going to stamp out this crime problem, you know, like Sheriff Ozzy locally kind of thinks, you know, like, we'll just, you know, we'll just spot these extremists. They'll have swastika tattoos. They'll look like the order. Um, When you make that assumption, you miss the fact that actually they've been normalizing and mainstreaming and they have connections to mainstream institutions. So that framing, you know, while it tries to equalize things, it ends up kind of reinforcing this narrative that gives fascism power. Yeah. So when people say, like, we have to call white nationalist terrorists because we're calling ISIS terrorists, the impulse is an anti-racist impulse when it's ordinary right. people saying that, right? right? They say, like, you know, we're always making out people of color and Muslims as terrorists immediately when, when something happens. But if it's white people, then we don't label them. Right. And that's a very healthy concern. Yeah. But I think we need to just be shifting away from that terminology altogether.
1: So it's a very difficult and nuanced discussion to have. And I kind of worry that we can't really, it's a hard in our culture to have these discussions. So that's one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on. Cause like one of the things you mentioned is that regardless of how equally we're applying them, terms like terrorism are so rooted in our culture and the way we think and speak that it's like, even when you're talking about cracking down on far right, terrorism, the word terrorism ends up splashing back on by increasing like Islamophobia in general. Right. So can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, that's my concern. So I want to be clear, too. It's not like I don't want harsh sentences on Nazis or I honestly I just I just (laughs) I I don't care. Right. (laughs) I mean, I see their humanity, but I I don't care what happens to them to a certain extent. Right. Um, So this is not an argument like you know be
1: nice to nazis it's not
0: a be nice to nazis argument right <laughs> um, the point is the other causes that we're fighting for we don't want to undermine in our urgent attempt to get people to take fascism and the far right more seriously right and so a- islamophobia is a huge part of this because you know i think americans at this point have been socialized and trained by the media and by film and by our political system to just reflexively view terrorism as as a, as a Muslim problem yeah and there's you know a, a huge attempt to just sort of question that sort of terminology and that whole counterterrorism industry which is often linked up with islamophobic Organizations. So partially this is a response to activist concerns from the Muslim community nationally and internationally who have been raising these concerns. For example, there's an anti-Muslim hate group called Clarion Project. It's on the Southern Poverty Law Center's list of Islamophobic hate groups. But they've presented themselves as this countering terrorism, countering extremism, countering radicalization organization. They even have some former neo-Nazis they invite on to interview and they're like, look, we're against the extremes on both sides. We're against all the terrorists. <laughs>
1: Classic.
0: <laughs> so it's, yeah, exactly. And then and then you even find that within organizations that receive government funding for counterterrorism. Like yeah. there's been a lot of controversy about Quilliam in Britain okay. and how, you know, and I want to be careful because like I know they've like, Successfully sued the Southern Poverty Law Center for being called Islamophobic. <laughs> um, but but I, I think it's a fair charge. I'll just say that. So they claim, oh, we're this de-radicalization organization. We help people leave hate groups. But they've had just like all of these different controversies. And like I've seen, you know, videos where they've had people like Miley Yiannopoulos on panels. Wow. And it's just like,
1: These are not good people. Not good people. And it it also strikes me that what the other thing that it does is that it like sort of, and I guess it's like, it's a two, it's a two phase problem, right? Because we are, we have been trained, we have been indoctrinated almost inculcated to view, like, the only solution to terrorism is this incredibly draconian, extrajudicial, you know, we're going to a black site somewhere, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna Abu Ghraib you, like, if you label these things terrorism, then there's only one way to deal with it. But then also, because of the the history of America as a a white supremacist place, like, even when you think you're trying to crack down on the groups that are predominantly white, it ends, like, the laws that get created in the face of that end up further disproportionately people of color, whether that's Muslim folks like of Arab extraction or black people.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So if you look at in the U.S., countering violent extremism is like one of the major avenues where this money from the government goes to these counterterrorism and counterextremism organizations those same pots of money go to surveilling black lives matter surveilling refugee communities right. classifying anti antifa certain ways right yeah. and so like if if we're starting to push for calling the kkk a terrorist organization for example which has been like a big push recently yeah. what's going to happen when we do that well you know once the kkk is a, ter- a terrorist organization then we're going to want it to be treated like a terrorist organization And to have it be treated like a terrorist organization, then we need those designations to have bite. So we're going to need the state to have the power and influence to go out and go after terrorists and surveil terrorists. But what's going to happen is that's going to end up being resources for surveillance and backlash against minorities and the left.
1: You, you posted a link to a Boston Review article from June that I can't, I'll, I'll get the actual title and I'll put it in the show notes. But the article pointed out that when the Trump administration labeled Antifa a terrorist organization, quote, Their actions draw attention to the fact that incarceration and counterterrorism are two arms of the same state apparatus. This is further driven home by the sight of police attacking citizens with surplus military weapons from the war on terror, often using counterterrorism warfare techniques that were learned from the Israeli defense forces and other counterinsurgency training abroad. So, Really what we're talking about is bringing the war industrial complex home to our city streets and often attacking peaceful protesters as we saw happen all over the country in June. Yes. Okay. So that's, I'm feeling like I'm going to lead the witness here, but like, why is that a problem, Joan? (laughs) Well, it strikes me that it's just like further encircling this like perpetual war in Afghanistan and Iraq, but like the active conflict isn't happening so much. So we're seeing, and this is, you know, what this article points out is like all of this army surplus got sold to our sheriff's department, our police force all across America. So now we're like weaponizing with the literal weapons of war, our police forces, and then that's being used to put down civil unrest in our own country. And then if, and then if they can you know, use the guise of terrorism, you know, if that, if that's a word that gets like sort of normalized talking about what is the sort of street protests we've seen, people talk about the brutality of Selma. It's like, what happens if there's another Selma, but it's like active military weaponry on the streets, you know?
0: Yeah. Tanks instead of dogs. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's exactly what what we're dealing with. I mean, we saw that in Portland with DHS going out and picking up protesters off the streets, um, not identifying themselves, putting them in unmarked vans. We saw that here in Spokane with the arrest of the co-chair of the Democratic Socialists of America chapter, Jeremy Logan, just being targeted. With a political arrest, apparently his Facebook was being watched and he said the wrong thing about, yeah. <laughs> about the sheriff. And, you know, police departments are being trained. They're not getting this out of nowhere. And I think some of it is there are actual people who are like far-right ideologues and and neo-Nazis in police departments. And yeah. there's been even like deliberate infiltration over time. Yeah, But even people that are not in that worldview, they get materially, financially And otherwise rewarded for having this simplistic view that you can just sort of identify the extremes and identify the threat as extremist. It's becoming more and more dangerous as what would have ordinarily been considered extreme is becoming mainstream um, as the far right is mainstreamed and normalized you know, then if, if that's what we're defending,
1: yeah,
0: <laughs> then it's a, a state defense of fascism.
1: And, and even going back to the, this time around 9-11, like I was a ch- junior in college when 9-11 happened. I remember waking up and I remember being, you know, on the other side of the country still being very afraid. And then that was the year I went and studied abroad. So I lived in Europe and I came back to an America that I didn't really recognize in a lot of ways. But I think about like when there's that intense level of fear, even taking the most sort of generous reading of the immediate aftermath of 9-11, it's like, even if everybody was just, absolutely scared shitless. And they were like, we have to protect ourselves at all costs. So let's kid up to counter um, the threat of terrorism. At some point, we've got to realize one, that's not necessary. And two, it's being used against our own people. But as long as we continue using the same language, there's probably not going to be a mental shift. The the more you reinforce a feeling with language, the more it becomes truth. Mm -hmm. And so like, Part of what you're saying is we we can't hope to sort of correct these things that we're actively doing as a society if we don't start talking about them differently. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, and I, you know, I kind of trust ordinary people's wisdom too. you know, like because I believe we have to fight fascism with social movements. You know, I speak to a lot of people who are working on things at the grassroots and, you don't have to have like some sort of perfect vocabulary to show up and fight these things but yeah. I think training ourselves to interrogate the language that we're using I think is really valuable and thinking about where these terms come from and whose interests they serve and even when that comes to you know some of the more mainstream or liberal language that we're going to see you know in the Biden administration assuming there is a Biden administration <laughs> um, around healing and That's a whole yeah <laughs> Um,
1: We're recording this on the night of the Georgia runoff election, so everything feels up in the air right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. And they're marching tomorrow in D.C., you know, heavily armed. So who knows how that will go. Right.
1: Jace, how's that for the most ominous foreshadowing you could imagine? The dun-dun-dun sound that I do is only for funny moments. It is not for literal dun-dun-dun moments, but that is certainly one. So but what were you, you were saying about the Biden administration? and
0: Right. So even, you know, even when we think about language like healing and reconciliation and empathy and coming together, Yeah, you know, there are a lot of words that give us fuzzy feelings or that give us feelings of justice and moral outrage that don't always serve the purposes we intend. Right. And I think in the case of, of the language around terrorism and extremism, a lot of that, though, is about listening to communities that have already been harmed by that discourse. Yeah. And so I think if we have a broad enough array of people at the table and if we're sort of conscious and aware and listening, a lot of that can be overcome.
1: So is that in your mind then like taking the the, the communities that have been sort of disproportionately impacted by use the use of terms like terrorism and saying like, how would you guys talk about this or is it something else?
0: Yeah, I think the, I think a lot of it's that. Yeah, it's asking it's asking communities and looking at what the experts and leaders in those communities have already been writing and saying about this.
1: So before we go on to like what your ideas are for how to do it differently, in addition to not liking the word terrorist, you also kind of want to get away from using the word extremism, a word that I use a lot. and I kind of feel like is pretty predominant in the discourse like to talk about these groups. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like, why is that even too far in your mind?
0: Right. So this comes out of Cold War discourse in the United States and Europe. And if you so the model is essentially that, you know, capitalism is kind of in the middle and the extremes are fascism and communism. Yeah. And so, in order to be, you know, pro-Western democracy, um, pro-capitalist, you have to oppose both of these extremes.
1: You have to be anti-fascist and anti-communist.
0: That's right. That that's the history, you know. And it also it paints this image of thinking about fascism as extremism, <laughs> or thinking about white supremacy or the far right as extremism. Um, it it also makes us hard. It makes it harder for us to recognize it when it shows up, because, you know, especially here in the Northwest, where there's been. A history of 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 white supremacist and and fascist violent insurgency, you know, where we've seen bombings of the Spokesman Review, of Planned Parenthood, the attempted bombing of the Martin Luther King March, the Order, um, the Aryan well, Nation. Too
1: recent a bomb threat. Another bomb threat recently in the last month at Planned Parenthood, and that what happened at the Democrats' offices just a few weeks ago. Yeah, so it's, exactly. it's all. It's not just history. It's very much in our present. Yeah, exactly.
0: Ahead. It's very much true that white supremacist movements and fascist movements in this region pose a violent threat. Yeah. And people are right to point that out. Yeah. There is a dangerous as well as criminal side to this, especially historically in the Pacific Northwest, but historically everywhere with these movements. So that's very true and we have to hold that intention with, with this critique of this language. Yeah. But these organizations have been strategically normalizing and mainstreaming for a long time. You know, even going back to the 80s, they were already having these conversations. When we see language like white nationalist instead of white supremacist, that was an attempt to to tone down the language and to seem, you know, more normal. Yeah. And then, you know, now we get terms like alt-right. Right. Um. And so, you know, when you think about locally here, for example, um, James Alsup was a really a prime example a few years ago of someone who was trying to mainstream and normalize fascism.
1: He was the he was like the chair of the young Republicans down at WSU. Is that the guy? Yes. And then he tried to basically take over the local Republican Party in in a manner of speaking.
0: Yes, I think that's fair. Well, what happened was first he was head of the Republicans at um, WSU, then got elected precinct committee officer at the Republican Party in, in Pullman, which is extremely easy to do. Nobody really knew it's he not was hard. running. There's like, like
1: lots of them. Yeah,
0: Anybody could be a precinct officer. Yeah. But he presented himself after that as like, you know, now I'm an elected official. But, you know, this was a whole strategic effort on the part of his branch of the white nationalist movement nationally. They were all trying to do this. Um, So if you listen to his speeches, but the speeches of other people in his organization, which is now defunct, because it's moving in some other different directions, but Identity Europa, which became American Identity Movement, they were talking like this. They were saying, look, appeal to people's sense of of our ideas as normal. You know, Sound like the boy or the girl next door. They wouldn't use the word racist, but there are racist statements that are normal. Yeah. Like, I, you know, build the wall. You know, I'm scared of the foreigners, right? So yeah. appeal to people's sense of these ideas being normal and clean up. Um, don't get a swastika tattoo on your face. Don't sig heil. Yeah. <laughs> Shake hands. Meet your local Republican Party. Get into positions of power. And that strategy has, to some degree, already succeeded within the Trump administration yeah. and is going to continue to be an avenue people are going to pursue and so if we're looking at fascism or white nationalism or white supremacy as extremism, we're going to start picturing people the way our region has historically pictured that as, you know, sig heiling swastika tattooed bikers. Yeah. And we're not going to recognize fascism when it shows up in exactly the kinds of forms where it could be more powerful and influential.
1: Right. So if it doesn't look extreme, it's not going to feel extreme. So we might have a tendency to diminish especially in this area with our history, we might diminish the threat of somebody like James Alsop, when in fact he was probably, although precinct committee officer or whatever is not a high ranking position. He held a position in the Republican party locally that Richard Butler never held, for example, like legit, mm-hmm. like goose stepping Nazis never held. Right. So in some ways, But the ideology is similar enough that it's like, well, actually, if I'm looking at these two people, Richard Butler or, you know, the Nazi that was recently executed in Georgia, I think, who spent a good part of his youth in the 90s at punk shows in Spokane, in terms of like the potential society changing danger, a guy like Alsup is scarier than than Butler, who can be identified and sort of like encapsulated like a cyst and like, you know, starved out uh, to mix about 15 metaphors there. But you're saying if we keep... Relying on the language of extremism, we're going to miss people like Alsop and Stephen Miller in the in the Trump administration, right?
0: Right. And Alsop isn't scary anymore in this in the same sense that he was. Like, right. You know, now he's out of that. You know, but there's always going to be another Alsop. But, but yeah. that trend, exactly right. I mean, the ideology itself is always scary. But what I'm saying is, you know, like, yeah. You know the the figures come and go, and they come and go largely because of the activism that people do. Yeah. Like he got exposed, and his plot didn't work right so now we have to follow other people that are you know doing the same kind of thing and see what happens you know like nick fuentes for example who was actually an associate of also a while back and they did a podcast together that was how they started off but now he's got his own thing yeah he's got the griper movement right and very cleaned up um but you know still says you know he doesn't doesn't support you know interracial relationships you know it's white nationalism (laughs) you know like even if he doesn't want to use that term
1: and importantly it didn't take the levers of anti-terrorism or anti-extreme Extremism to expose and sort of deplatform is a is pl- a politically loaded word, but like it didn't take sending James Alsup to Guantanamo to strip his power away, right? Like that was right. what you're talking about with social movements is like yeah. you can just like out somebody as a Nazi or out somebody as some having racist views and then put social pressure on whatever sort of structures in society they are a part of to be like, if you as the Republican party want to be taken seriously by the rest of us, you have to get rid of your racist precinct committee officer or whatever. Yeah. In that specific example.
0: You know, I think exposing these things is a huge part of it. And I think also, you know, we could do a lot to prevent people from going down those rabbit holes um, by having a left that really reaches out to people that has strong analysis that has a rich cultural life that engages people in, in discussions about the meaning of life, yeah. that provides for people's needs, that's engaged in mutual aid and, and the construction of alternative institutions, like all of that kind of stuff that the left has historically been really good at. Yeah. We need to kind of keep building that because I think sometimes we think, well, you know, as long as there are more of us at the march at 3 p.m. on Sunday or whatever, as long as we outnumber we've them, yeah. we've done our job. And we shouldn't have to be outnumbering them. Right? Yeah, right. We, shouldn't have to, we easily do. We yeah. easily do, but we shouldn't have to be.
1: The, the goal would be to not have to do counter protests at all because we've sort of marginalized this ideology to the extent that people aren't marching anymore. Precisely. Right? OK. Yeah. It strikes me that what what you were just saying about. People feeling like an adequate left response is just showing up to the counter protest. Is that similar to like the critiques we've been hearing about electoralism, where it's like, oh, if we think that all we have to do to participate in democracy is showing up every four years or every two years to vote for our congressperson or our president. What building power is actually a lot more about doing things when people aren't looking or doing that like everyday political organizing in the sense of building political power or doing that everyday mutual aid of like helping out your neighbor when they're in trouble. Is that is that an analogy that you think carries weight or?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think going to a protest is better than electoralism.
1: Um, okay.
0: I do yeah. want to give it credit for that. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think, you know, organizing and activism are really not glamorous. And I think I've run into a lot of people who think, you know, oh, I'm not an activist because picture activism is something you do only with megaphones or something. Right. But a lot of what activism is, is it's about asking questions, building relationships, getting people thinking, building community. Yeah. And a lot of that is the hard work of being the person that, you know, shows up and and sets up the chairs or or being the person that does the phone tree.
1: Yeah.
0: And so it's, you know, in some ways it's easier than we make out. You know, we just need people to show up and and do what they can hard in a pandemic. Um, But I think we need to be thinking about, you know, more than just winning victories, Mm-hmm. You know, we get very caught up in winnable goals. This is the problem, I think, with like Saul Alinsky, for example, okay. the rules for radicals guy that the right wing is so terrified of and that like most people on the left don't care about and have never read. <laughs> um <laughs> And, you know, I, I, he's got some interesting ideas about tactics and stuff, but but this whole idea that you have to fixate on people's self-interest. You organize people, according to Olinsky by convincing them that their interest is at stake in some cause. Yeah. Like, you need a bus to get to work, just like the children need the bus to get to school, right? That kind of thing. So you yeah. convince them it's their interest first, and then you focus on these winnable campaigns. But if all you're doing is focusing on winnable campaigns you're losing part of the whole spirit of what the left is about. You know, that there's this emancipatory project that we're all engaged in. It's a utopian in the good sense, not not the sense of it being impossible. The impossible sense, yeah. But yeah, the, it's a utopian aspiration where we're trying to build a different kind of society together, where we're trying to dream differently and imagine differently and build community differently. And so I think what's happening, too, with with some of these young people that are getting sucked into the far right, sitting at home all day online on their computers, being bombarded with memes by Nazis. And it's a small number, but it's it's a scarily large number in comparison to what boomers think it is. It's a much higher number. (laughs) Um, Kids are getting recruited into the far right. And, you know, I think part of that is like, you know, where is the community, you know, that that these young people can join? Where is the excitement? And. And the ambition to create something new and different and exciting. And we have to reach people with that. And I want to be clear, you know, like they're responsible for their choices, you know, and like we have to hold them responsible for their choices. But alienated young people shouldn't have to wonder if there's a left out there that's doing this kind of exciting emancipatory project.
1: Right. And and there's there's the personal responsibility of somebody who decides to be a Nazi. Right. That's that's not in dispute at all. Like you could make the choice to not be that, but where I think there's a societal responsibility is giving is when that kid doesn't feel like there are any other options or isn't aware of any other options for either a lack of any left at all or, or just like ineffective messaging or ineffective organizing. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. The word effective is so interesting there too. Cause now that we're thinking about words, you know, <laughs> I think it's a very, this
1: is why nobody likes philosophy majors, but I'm, I'm sorry, really enjoying the sorry. heck out of it. No, it's good. No, it's good. This is like, I'm getting a little bit of my own medicine. I'm like, let's unpack that a little bit.
0: Yeah. Like, you know, I think it's a really good word. Cause I think it's a, it's a fundamental human need that we have to feel like we can have an impact on the world, that we leave the world a little different because we're here. Yeah. And if you don't feel like you can do that, then you're going to go in some sort of more accelerationist direction, yeah. um, both on the far right and the left where you think, well, you know, it's hopeless. We just have to tear things down and make people angry enough. And and then we'll just reconstruct everything out of the chaos once we get everything bad enough, Right. which is not good radical left politics. And it's certainly dangerous on the far right where it becomes, you know, bombing things. Yeah. So we have to kind of recapture this sense of power mm-hmm. that we have of, of effectiveness, of the ability to leave the world different.
1: Yeah. And it doesn't help that like the, the political project in America for you know, since the end of world war II has been to sort of demonize the left to the extent that people are scared to use, you know, democratic socialism is a, an idea, whether or not you're into it or not, it's a, it's a very mainstream idea throughout most of the developed world. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, the fact that it's like, it was such an, uh, incredible and unbelievable achievement that like Bernie Sanders was able to say that and not like immediately burst into flames or whatever was like, that's not the most interesting thing about Bernie Sanders, but in the in the context of America, probably in your and my lifetime, it's like the fact that somebody was able to say, yeah, I am some shade of socialist and was still able to compete in a, in a major party campaign that opens up possibility. Right. So that's also partially about language. Right.
0: Right. You know, as a lot of these kind of Cold War frameworks are, are breaking down. Um, And, you know, the positive side of that is, is, you know, this kind of thing where, you know, young people are able to engage with left wing thought in a way that they might have been um, unable to before. You know, I've noticed um, the way that people talk about Marx, too. Hmm. People are less afraid to to read Marx, not through the lens of the Soviet Union, but yeah, like, right. what did Marx actually say, right. <laughs> which has been a struggle for people that actually study Marx for, for decades right. to have those kinds of conversations And that I feel like that's starting to change. So I feel like a lot of things are in flux right now. And I don't hope for catastrophes, but crises are kind of interesting moments. Right. And so, you know, there's it's kind of an opening that where different kinds of things could happen right now. Yeah.
1: So getting back to the, the language question, instead of terrorism, what do you prefer? And instead of in extremism, what do you prefer and why? Or, And maybe it's not a single word. Maybe it's more of a, a framing.
0: Right, I'm breaking away from terms that have been used to describe the the right and the left um, under the same umbrella. umbrella. Okay. So extremism is one of those. Instead, I like to just talk about what people actually are. Right. So okay. I will say, you know, the, the, these people are, you know, are fascists or they're fa- or they're far right or you know whatever they are. Yeah. And and just you know and just use the ideology. Same thing with radicalism and radicalization. Mm-hmm. Um, that that terminology has been applied both to left and to the right in problematic ways. Yeah. Um, I actually do like the term radical or radicalism, um, but not as a way of describing someone's rabbit hole to to Nazism. Yeah. Um, because to be a radical means that you're interested in the root problem. Radical means root.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and so, you know, there's. I, I think I'd like to kind of reclaim that a little bit, but that's a difficult thing to do in the kind of field of study I'm in, where radicalization has a different kind of meaning. Um, right.
1: It's being a radical versus being radicalized. Like the verb of that has very negative and mostly in my, yeah, like mostly sort of right-wing, negative right wing connotations. Um, when in fact, like in the 60s, if you were a radical, it probably meant you were on the left. You were in the maybe the women's movement or the, the movement for civil rights.
0: Yeah. It's a recent development that the use of that term in, the, in that way to describe the far right. Because it used to be when you know, people used to ask, you know, like what radicalized you? You know, and I was that always was like a good question for me, right? Like I was like, when did I realize there was a problem with capitalism? And like, when did I realize there was a problem with white supremacy? And, you know, but now when I see that question, what radicalized you on Twitter? Because everything I follow, I have to stop and ask, like, okay, are they asking when did you realize there was a problem with capitalism or are they asking when did you go down the dark tunnel to white supremacy and why do you feel bad about it now? Because it could be like either of those things, depending on who's posting it. Right. So that's another term that kind of does that. Populism is another one. So we talk about populism on the right and populism on the left. Yeah. And I don't think that's a very helpful category either, personally. I guess just more specificity in general <laughs> is what I'd like.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and less of this like both sides-ism, right? Right. There's, there's both like this sort of um, linguistic problem and this this desire for specificity that you have that I, I actually really, really like. But then it also strikes me that if if you're on the left which has, we've already discussed, has been like systematically, systemically, and with like state propaganda demonized for our parents' entire lives, our entire lives, then what feels radical on the left is actually a lot less radical than what we've, has been normalized as radical on the right, right? Is that part of why you think like kids in black hoodies are being called terrorists at a higher rate than people like James Alsop are, potentially?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think that's a fair point in the U S it's, it's amazing what we think is radical on the left, right? Like we think, you know, universal healthcare is radical. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. <laughs> Europe's uh, completely accustomed to this by now. I yeah, didn't, I I I didn't expect point.
1: to be depressed in exactly that way in this conversation, Jones. So thanks for reminding me about the, uh, <laughs> thanks for reminding me about that. Uh, no, that's a really good point. So then there's no one, uh, replacement for extremism what you want to do is is sort of just call it by its actual name Mm -hmm. right is that the name that these groups give themselves or is it something we assign to them
0: yeah i think it, it has to be based on on analysis and within an intellectual and historical tradition of trying to understand these things because they're not going to tell you oftentimes who they are and what they think Sometimes right. they do, but that depends more on the particular strategy they're pursuing than on what they believe if we're talking about fascists for example. You know, I think I think fascism is an important category and I think there are people on the far right who are not fascists, so we need to be thoughtful about what we mean by fascism. And there isn't really a single definition of fascism, but there are historical movements we can point to and there are kind you could kind of form a list if you wanted of about 20 or so things that you would kind of see as markers and see how many you, you hit. Right. But I think, you know, a hierarchical view of the world where um, there's a hierarchy of, of race and, and gender um, and other characteristics where there are some people who just sort of naturally, because of the kind of people they are should hold power Yeah. where right is determined by force or sort of mystical internal characteristics and not by Reason or, or um, equality, yeah. uh, where violence is, an, is a kind of an ennobling good. People kind of find their full human potential through violence. These are all kind of like characteristics of fascist ideology. And then, you know, I think of the far right as sort of a broader category that encompasses other kinds of things where somebody might, you know, not have an explicitly racist worldview, for example, but might be very hostile to democracy and equality.
1: Oh. Like the readout movement sure. kind of talks itself up a lot. Like we're anti, you know, like when we build this gun factory in North Idaho, it's gonna have black people in it too, as long as they believe what we believe. So it's important, what I hear you saying is it's important to sort of like have different little boxes that you can check and be like, no, just because you're not explicitly massively racist, uh, there's still stuff that's problematic. Right. Yeah. So. I'm going to probably maybe ask the biggest downer question before I get into the question. I ask everybody about what brings you hope. So hopefully this, uh, this first question won't color the second question. Cause I really, especially I think in conversations like this with you and with Leah and with Kate, I'm like, I'm really, I really feel like people that care enough to listen to the show that are the specific sort of uh, freak that likes to listen to me talk about topics like this are really, really looking for hope, especially around stuff like, you know, racism and totalitarianism in this slide that we maybe have narrowly avoided toward, if not outright fascism, then, you know, stuff that feels pretty fascistic. But I just listened to an episode of the New York Times Daily this morning that was, um, they did a two-parter about the Georgia runoff. Yesterday they did the Democrats and today they did the Republicans and did a bunch of man-on-the-street interviews and and like three quarters of the people at this, it was a Trump rally, right? So it's self-selected called John Ossoff a Marxist. Mm. And he's like, he's a Marxist. It's like, it's there, it's obvious. And then that's what gets reported. And journalists, as we've seen in the last four years, will just, not all journalists, let me say, but like a specific class of journalists who's reporting on the White House or reporting on whatever state apparatuses will use whatever term of art the state uses. Right. So when Trump calls somebody a terrorist, whether or not, you know, Brian Williams says you're a terrorist, he'll say Trump called Antifa terrorists. And that starts rooting in our minds. So I guess small voices like ours screaming into this wind that's like rushing in the opposite direction. Like, how do we win this argument? Do you know?
0: Yeah, I mean I think since I quoted Marx already, you know, <laughs> you know, the ruling ideas of a of a time, uh, the language is going to be shaped by those in power and that's somewhat inescapable. So it's not like like it's not like we're going to convince the FBI to drop its category of extremism or terrorism. Right. I mean, we could certainly push back against certain, you know, punitive measures or whatever, but that language is going to be there and I think there's always going to be a sort of conflict between the language that social movements use and the language that comes from power. And I think at the point at which, you know, the language has completely changed it will be because we have won. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, So that's always going to be an ongoing, ongoing struggle, but I think we can interrogate it. We can raise these questions. And, you know, and I think there are people in the media that are better at this than others. Um, You know, like, I'm a huge fan of Jason Wilson, for example, in in, um, Portland um, who does just like really cool stuff on On the far right, Leah Sotili as well, who you had on Um, and you and your podcast. I think like people, you know, it's um, there are people that do really serious thinking about these questions. And, you know, I think the thing about, you know, calling Ossoff a Marxist, um, that's a conspiracy theory, too. And so part of what we need to do is we need to start tracking conspiracy theories (laughs) because that is. I mean, it, yeah, I, I keep saying we have to look at more things, but <laughs> but that's a very important one, I think, because what it is, it, it's the cultural Marxism conspiracy theory. Yeah. So it's this idea that there's this secret cabal of people who are Marxists, right. who run everything. And it's it's a historically anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that still is anti-Semitic in a lot of its manifestations. Like, I don't use the term cultural Marxism. Nobody that does The kind of work that I do researching the Frankfurt School calls themselves a cultural Marxist. Um, You're called a critical theorist, right? This is an invention of the far right that there's this like this normalization of Marxism into all areas of society, you know, that it controls all of these different social movements and the media and entertainment and, and the universities and so on.
1: I think, yeah, I think if everybody who got has gotten called a Marxist or a cultural Marxist in the last four years was actually a Marxist, we do live in a very different country than the one we live in.
0: Dramatically different, (laughs) dramatically different. And you know, like, like I can think of maybe, one other marxist max at my university like and there's this mentality that like you know it's It's like it controls all the things yeah right and you know and i i didn't mean to talk about marxism as much in this conversation as i have it just kind of happened yeah yeah um but that would be a whole other conversation what i mean by that right because i'm not talking about you know soviet communism or something i'm talking about a concern with alienation and capitalism and, and how do we give people power back and how do we overcome people's sense of ineffectiveness. And,
1: and, yeah. And reconnect them to the, the fruits of their labor and the work that they do. And yeah. yeah. Right.
0: It's a question of meaning for me. It's not just, you know, who has the money, right? It's like, how do we find meaning in life and and in community?
1: Well, and ultimately that's one of the reasons that like we have to start having these conversations about how to derive meaning from a left perspective, right? because what's <laughs> the thing that's radicalizing these 10 year old kids on YouTube is they're looking for meaning on these channels and they're finding it via groiper shit and you know jordan peterson and and these other things that are i think legitimately then sending them down a a a rabbit hole toward like darker and darker shit and so what you're talking about is precisely what it it feels like we need to do which is just like if that's the if that's the kind of meaning the right is offering the extreme right the far right is offering then what sort of meaning are we offering and can we sort of like compete on that like Battlefield of ideas, I guess, to be like, no, actually what we're talking about is like rather than, you know, looking with suspicion upon your neighbor because they are in some way different than you because they're black or because they're trans or because whatever, what you should be doing is going to your neighbor and saying, hey, can I help you out? Mm -hmm. And then when they, you know, when it comes time to like you need help, then having the courage to go to that person and saying, hey, now I need help. Can we create a community that rather than excluding people for the benefit of a few, includes everybody for the mutual benefit of all. Right?
0: Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I think, you know, when we think about recruitment of these young people into the far right, too, part of it is, is it's, it's nihilism. Yeah. And, like, there's this sense of meaninglessness. And, you know, mainstream society just views that as rebellion, yeah. and doesn't view it as a question to be answered right and I think this kind of it, it connects to this issue of hope that you were raising um not that we have to finish <laughs> at this point but you know I think hope is is a large part of the solution to this like mm-hmm. this kind of radical hope like radical imagination and not being afraid of um, of imagining something different
1: yeah the activism that I've seen people doing is like, so constant and so it's just, it's all encompassing. And honestly, I'm in awe of people who can do that work day in, day out. Um, I include you in that. I include people like Kate bits and that
0: Kate's amazing.
1: (laughs) It's, it's really incredible. And not just, and not just, um, like you're saying the, the holding a bullhorn way, but like I will go take somebody who just got out of jail and needs uh, fast food delivered to them. Cause they haven't eaten in 12 hours. Like that sort of thing. Like that's activism, right? It's like yeah. going and helping a single person with a problem that they have. I can't remember where I was going with that. Oh, but I do think that like this idea of um, just envisioning a better world and getting people to dream a little bit is a, is a thing I think we can all do, whether we think of ourselves as uh, activists or not. Like I had this story that I, I don't think I've ever shared on this pod, but that I like, You know, my parents are relatively conservative people, but not like massively ideologically partisan. And in 2016, before the end of the primaries, my mom followed me out of the house and was like, what do you think about that Bernie Sanders guy? Hmm. And I was I didn't know how to respond. I don't talk about politics with my parents very much. They're not really interested in it, but. I thought back to like, like how my parents were always trying to just like rub two nickels together to like make ends meet and also, you know, pay for my allergy shots and whatever random stuff. The only thing I thought to respond to that was like, I think it would have made your and dad's lives a lot easier to have some of the things that he's talking about wanting for people. And she just looked at me and this is the only, to this day, the only conversation we've had about it. She's like, I think you're right. I think it wow. would have made things a lot easier, and that's and sometimes that's all you need. And I think so. Maybe if there is hope, and I want to get your sort of final thoughts on on that hope, if you want to expand on it further, it's like I I derive immense hope from the power of sort of dreaming differently about the world and how easy it is to be like you know what look because ultimately if the project is getting people who have been historically kicked around to imagine a better world, imagine a better life for themselves, that that's I think if we can get serious about it an easier sell than getting somebody who has no reason to hate another person because of their color of their skin to just like hate them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If we can start that earlier or do it more often or something, I don't know. What do you think?
0: Yeah. I think, um, I think hope is, is our natural state. Um, Mm. that when you look at young people, they're curious, they're optimistic that they can find the answers. They ask why expecting to hear back. Yeah. And hate is, is something that takes longer to develop, you know, you have to kind of actively brainwash yourself into it if you're going to be sort of, you know, a militant hater. So, and this is like Eric Fromm's stuff too. My first book was on, on hope actually. and, And Eric Fromm is a thinker who writes on hope that, you know, he says it's, it's part of life. Like, if you didn't have hope, you wouldn't be alive, right? Mm. And it's, it's kind of that fundamental. And so it's interesting to kind of reflect, too, on how things might be changing because of the pandemic. We've, we've definitely seen some worsening of people um, and a, a kind of callousness toward people's vulnerability. Um, but we've also seen a kind of new awareness of the ways in which we are all vulnerable, uh, and, absolutely, and so I think that has a lot of potential for us to think about needing to build support for one another, needing to have a structure that enables us to support each other. That's becoming more obvious every day under the conditions that we're in. Yeah, and I think it's also growing up partially in South Dakota. You know, it's there's a kind of Midwestern America, like down home Americanism, too, <laughs> that that views the world that way, right? It's not just Marx, right? It's also like just when your neighbor's house is on fire, yeah. you know, you get out the buckets and you
1: help yeah. and you
0: help. Right. Yeah. And I think getting past the idea that that's just that that's not a political act. Right. But that we have to ask, you know, why is the house on fire? <laughs> are there other houses on fire? <laughs> How are <laughs> yeah. we going to get buckets to people? <laughs> right. Right.
1: The project is a little bit harder than just yeah, like picking up a bucket. But
0: but it's part of the same spectrum. I think Absolutely. it's part of the same project. Yeah.
1: Well, Joan, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, this won't be the last time I uh, call upon your uh, philosopher's talents to unpack something like this. So I appreciate you coming on.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's a great project. I love the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Whew. Man, that was awesome. Well, I will leave it there except to say, Joan Braun, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Speak Studios, thank you for hosting us. There will be a link to uh, check out Speak if you want have designs on your own podcast. Uh, can't recommend them highly enough. They have really, really helped streamline this process. Last thing I'll say, if you like this content, you can keep it. You just have to help me turn it into a sustainable enterprise by becoming a member of Range, rangemedia.co. If you have the money, we keep this free for everybody, regardless of their ability to pay for it. But that means that if you can afford it, 10 bucks a month or 100 bucks a year, please become a member so that we can keep having amazing conversations like the one we just had with Joan. Also, lastly, speaking of Joan, our first commissioned essay is from Joan it is in the newsletter it came out a couple days ago I will put a link to it in the show notes subscribe to the range newsletter you can get whatever random thoughts I have but also smart people like Joan writing essays in range hopefully from now on it's a new thing we're starting 2021 kicking it off with a bang all right I hope everyone has a better week see you next time
0: La da 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 da, epicadabra. La da di di da da la da 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 da, hocus pocus. Boy,
1: I hope the restaurant's still open. I haven't eaten since I left Koop Kamunga.